So the center of what we're going to do tonight is communion. And Stacy just created a beautiful table for us. <laughs> and Joe made that cross for this service. Yeah. Thank you, guys. But before communion, for just a little bit, I want to talk with you guys about the resurrection. And what I want to do tonight is kind of peel back the layers and look at the very heart, the very center of the crucifixion. What was happening when Jesus died on the cross? What really was happening? Why did he do what he did? And there's a verse when Paul is writing. He's writing to a man named Titus who is one of his disciples. And it was near the end, closer to the end of Paul's life. And, and in this letter, Paul was taking what were the most important things he could pass on to Titus and word them with, in such a way that Titus could grasp it. And here's what he says in Titus chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. Paul says, Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. And to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So I underline that phrase from all lawlessness because it starts there. And, and the question is what happens when you break the law? Right? What happens when you break the law? Somebody tell me. You get what? Yeah, you get punished. You have consequences when you break the law. Lawlessness implies the breaking of the law. If you do good, but why are you punished when you break the law? The reason you are punished, it's not because of the reason of the law. It's what's behind the law is a principle, and the principle is justice. And justice is not just a principle, it's an attribute of God. And because of justice... When you break the law, something happens. And what is justice? The Bible defines it for us. Justice is getting what you deserve. Justice is this. You're going to get the consequence of your decision. You're going to get the result, the consequence of your choice. So if you do good works, you get rewarded. If you do bad works, you get punished. For, I mean, if you commit a traffic violation, if you run through a red light and the cop sees you, what's, what, what's going to happen when he pulls you over? What's he going to do? He's going to give you a ticket. He's going to give you a citation. And it's probably going to come with a fine of two, three, four, five, six, seven, or more hundred dollars. Right? But when Paul is talking about lawlessness, he is not talking about breaking the laws of people. He's talking about the law of God, the standard that God has set up for how he wants his universe run. And it's a reflection of how he is. So when you 
commit a traffic violation, you get a fine, you get a citation, but what's the punishment for breaking God's law? It's not just a fine or a citation. What is it? It's separation, which the Bible calls what? Death. And in the book of Romans, Paul repeats this over and over and over. Romans 1.32, For though they knew God's righteous decree, His law, that those who practice such things, breaking the law, deserve to what? Die. And then he says they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. But that's all of us. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is what? Death. How many of you have broken God's law? All of us deserve what? Death. Separation from God forever. That's what we all deserve. And if that's the case, it looks like there's no hope for human beings. Right? That's why Paul says this, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. So God's solution is who gave himself for us to redeem us. What does that mean? You see, God is going to satisfy his justice. God is going to punish sin. But how God punish, punishes sin, it's his prerogative how he does it. He is sovereign. He can choose how he punishes. So God can choose to punish the sinner or punish a substitute in the sinner's place. He can make that choice, right? And God not only chose, he not only chose to allow substitution, but with Jesus' death on the cross, he didn't just say, I'm going to permit substitution. He said, I'm going to provide the substitute. But he didn't stop there. He said, I'm not just going to provide the substitute. I'm going to, listen to me, become the substitute. I'm going to become the substitute. When you read scripture, this idea of this concept of substitution in the way that it describes Jesus' death on the cross, it is found everywhere. Everywhere. Here's some examples. Isaiah 53, 5. For he was pierced for his transgressions. For whose? Our transgressions. He was crushed for whose iniquities? Ours. That's as a substitute. Mark 10, 45, for even the Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for who? Many. Romans 5, 8, while we were still sinners, Christ died for who? Us. That's substitutionary language. 1 Corinthians 15, 3, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture. 
2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us as a substitute in our place. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, which is death, by becoming a curse for us. Substitution. Titus 2.14, which we already read, our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself what? For us. Hebrews 9.28, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many. 1 Peter 3.18, for Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous what? For the unrighteous, in their place as a substitute. 1 John 3.16, he laid down his life, what? For us. Substitutionary language is everywhere. The entire sacrificial system within Israel, with the tabernacle and temple, the entire system is based on the concept of a substitute in your place. Right? But here's what I mentioned earlier. God didn't just provide a substitute. He what? He what? He became the substitute. Let's look at this. What does Titus tell us about this? Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, to redeem us from all lawlessness. So when you look at this verse, verse 14, who is the who? Who is the himself? The answer to that is in verse 13. The pronoun who and himself refers back to verse 13, where it says, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. But to understand the verse, you have to understand that phrase. Our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, does it refer to two persons or one person? This is really important. If it, is it two persons? Is it God the Father and our Savior, Jesus Christ? Or is it one person, our Savior Jesus Christ, who is our great God? Do you understand what I'm asking? And we actually know the answer to that. We know for a fact the answer to that. It is one person, not two. How do we know that? One re way we know that is this phrase, of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That phrase modifies the noun, the appearing. So, of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, modifies the noun, the appearing. That noun in Greek, epiphonea, 100% of the time in the Bible refers to the coming of Jesus. It never refers to a visitation of the Father 
or an outpouring of the Spirit. It's a word that is specifically used for the incarnation and the coming of Jesus. The second reason we know this, and I apologize for what I'm about to do, but this is actually important. The New Testament was written in which language? Greek. And there is a the in the Greek that you don't see in the English. An article, the. And in Greek, when you have the article the in front of two nouns connected by an and, if those two nouns are both singular nouns and not plural, if those two nouns are personal, referring to a person, and if those two nouns are what are called improper, it means it's not the name of somebody, right? Then 100% of the time, the two nouns are the same person. It's, it's called the Granville Sharp Rule, which is a Greek grammar rule. 100% of the time, it's the same person, right? So when scholars look at this and they know the Greek grammar rule, they said it fits every part of the rule. It tells you that, our, that the word God, theos, and Savior, soter, is one and the same person. So it's not our God the Father and our Savior Jesus Christ. It is our Savior Jesus Christ who is our great God. Now it's interesting when you look in the New Testament, the New Testament, I swear, it's almost in every other paragraph they are trying to make a point. And here's the point. That Jesus is God. And you know what the other point is? Jesus is not the Father. It's always trying to make those two points. That Jesus is God and Jesus is not the Father. You guys know the Trinity, right? One God, one divine nature, three persons. Father, Son, and Spirit. The way that they do that in the New Testament is to, to, to accomplish both goals, usually when they refer to the Father, they use the Greek word theos, which is translated as God. When they refer to Jesus, they use the word kyrios, which is translated as Lord. And every time they refer to an Old Testament verse that has the name Yahweh, have you guys ever heard the name Yahweh? The name translated as Lord. Every time Yahweh is translated in the New Testament, it's kurios, Lord. And in the Greek Old Testament, kurios, Lord. You might say, well, what, Sam, that's great. Why does that matter? Here's why it matters. And here's an example of that. Grace to you and peace from God, Theos, our Father, and the Lord, Kyrios, Jesus Christ. What is that trying to tell you? Jesus and Father, the Father are not the same, but Jesus and the Father are both God. But why, what does that tell us about this verse in Titus? Rarely 
In the New Testament is Jesus directly called God. Except when Paul does it, when Paul calls Jesus God like he does in this verse, it's, there's a reason for that. And the reason for that is this. When Paul is trying to make a point that God is substituting, that God is becoming himself the substitute on the cross, when he's trying to make that point, he'll call Jesus God, not just Lord. You got to let that sink in because this is at the very heart of the crucifixion. God is substitute, the substitute is himself in our place. There are three different places in Titus where Paul keeps emphasizing, hammering the self-substitution of God. And in all three places, Paul highlights that God in Christ are the Savior. God in Christ is the Savior. So, in Titus 1, chapter 1, verses 3 to 4, by the command, now follow me here, by the command of God our Savior, verse 4, and Christ Jesus our Savior. What's he saying? Jesus is what? God. And God is substituting himself in our place. Titus chapter 2, verses 10 to 13. So that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior, verse 10. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, verse 13. Titus chapter 3, verse 4 to 6. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, verse 6, whom he poured out on us richly, through Jesus Christ, our Savior. You guys, tell me if you're getting my point. So what does this mean? Does someone have a phone beeping? I don't know what that is. Okay. Why does God have to be the one who becomes a substitute? And this is what we're going to finish with. Why? Why can't it just be a human being that has never sinned? Well, Jesus was a, a fully human being who never sinned. But why does it have to be God? Do you know what I mean? Why, why couldn't it be a perfect angel? Why does God have to become the substitute? Why can't it be just a perfect angel or another perfect human as a substitute? If you have a debt and what you owe is not just, a debt is owed to you and it's not just a thousand dollars, it's not just a million dollars, and it's not just a billion dollars, but it's an infinite amount of money that is owed in that debt. If it's an infinite amount of money, does that make sense? 
Who can repay it? Does that make sense? Only an infinite God can satisfy his own demand of justice. By offering himself as a sacrifice, bearing the punishment for our sin. And you might say, well, how, how, how can God... The uncreated, immaterial, spirit God be a substitute in our place through Christ. Because Christ is both fully God and what? Fully man. And, and when you look at this verse, he the father who did not spare his own son, but here it is again as a substitute, but gave him up for us all. But does this first, here's when people read this, they think of the Trinity as divided. Well, God is the punisher, the Father. Jesus is the one being punished, the Son. And they're acting independently of each other. And they're acting against each other. That is not true. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit have the same nature, right? They also have the exact same purpose. Not only do they have the same nature, they have the same purpose. God's nature is not divided. Jesus is fully God, the Spirit is fully God, the Father is fully God. God is not divided. And their purpose is not divided. So what, here's what that means. The persons of the Trinity, they can't exist apart from each other, right? They can't act against each other any more than they can exist apart from each other. Does that make sense? So when you read, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, do you understand? The giving of the son is God giving himself. God giving himself. So when we go into communion, I, we need to remember what really happened when G, in Jesus' The shed blood, the broken body, it speaks of his death. But what really happened? Everybody got that? So let's go ahead and you guys want to come up now and just lead us in communion.